You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. John chapter 19, where we're going to be this morning. We are uh, in a series right now where we're trying to do something a little bit, maybe a little bit different. Um, We are trying to think um, through the implications of what Jesus said on the cross. And so what we're imagining is that we are together exactly like we are right now, sitting down on the side of the hill, looking up at Jesus. Nobody can see us. We're not interacting with anybody else, but just mentally we're there, knowing what's going on, knowing how this plays out, uh, but hearing the words of Jesus, those strained words that He literally had to pull His body weight against the nails pierced through His body to suck in air to make these declarations, these statements uh, to help us understand what is going on in the midst of those. And today we're going to be looking at two of those statements that point us directly to Christ's humanity. Um, If there's one thing in the cop household that we love, it's witty t-shirts. Right, those T-shirts that are just you know goofy, have a funny saying or whatever, make you chuckle when you read them. Um, and I think it stems from when I was a, a teenager; those were kind of starting to become in vogue a little bit. Uh, and I remember I had a T-shirt uh, that on the front it said "Bomb Squad," and on the back it said, "If you see me running, try and keep up." Uh, it may take a few of you a second to process through that one there, uh, but it, it's it, it uh, as I was thinking about the text today and thinking about. This, this discipline that we're trying to do in this Lent season leading up to Easter as we think about uh, the, the weightiness of what Christ uh, did for us on the cross. It got me thinking back about that t-shirt and the, uh, you know, the, the, the scene that you see in every movie when there's a bomb that's there, right? And the bomb squad guy's in this you know, like huge armor stuff and he's sitting there trying to... And it's the question of, do you cut the red wire or the blue wire? You know, as those like terrorists follow some kind of code of wiring to figure, you know, like, uh, and so, but it's always this thing. And the, the part that you never see around that is you don't see like a crowd of people with their cell phones out, just kind of like, oh, cool, you know, hey, what's it? Hey, look at me, right? Like, you don't see anybody. It's huge perimeter. Everybody's out, right? Like, nobody gets close to that kind of a thing. And how strange would it be if there was a bomb squad situation right in the middle of Times Square uh, and, you know, and everything, and there's this guy sitting there and he's working on the stuff and he's sweating bullets because he doesn't know and this is bomb and just people are just mulling by as it's going on, right? Like just walking right by and literally like bumping in as he's doing something, just totally oblivious to the reality of there. It wouldn't make for a really great movie, uh, obviously. But there's this sense of going, there's something significant and important that is going on in this moment, and everybody that's just kind of casually milling about doing their own thing as they're squirreling on by. It would be the same thing as if a, uh, uh, if a guy was doing, you know, a surgeon was doing open heart surgery in the middle of Grand Central Station, and this you know, every movement and everything is precise. It is this significant event, and yet life is just happening all around it. And in these two statements, it feels very much like that. That there is something significant. There is something that is sacred that is happening. And yet, in the midst of it, there's just the normal. Uh, And so, this morning, 
We're going to be taking a look at the collision that takes place in, in our text and really the collision that takes place in all of our life of what oftentimes we try to classify as the secular and the sacred, the, the flesh and the spirit, the, the holy and the normal. And we try to kind of compartmentalize those things out. And so Sunday morning, as we gather together as the church, we use words that we don't normally use and these kind of things because this is secular, right? But then as soon as this is done and we all pull out Potland, the same chairs that we were sitting in here worshiping God and listening to His Word and get spun around and they get coffee spilled on them and meat drippings land on them and all this kind of stuff and it just turns from the sacred to the normal, right? And here it is in this story... This is, for everyone else that is in this story, this is just another normal Friday. You know, Roman guards going, ah, we got some more crucifixions to do. All right, what time do you get off? I don't know, it depends on when they die, right? Like, I mean, just it's just normal stuff for them. There's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing holy about this. There's nothing sacred about this that's going on there. And yet, we know... That there was something profound happening. So take a look with me in John chapter 19. We'll start in verse 23 and go all the way to 29. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all uh, was finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. The secular and the sacred. When the uh, Roman soldiers showed up that day to carry out their normal duties, to carry out justice in the land they had no concept of what they were actually going to be doing. They just were doing their normal thing. And one of their normal things was to take the remnant garments that were left over from these guys that weren't going to need them after they were killed. In fact, uh, the vast majority of the individuals, regardless of whether they were Jewish or not, that were killed by Romans were not buried in normal cemetery settings. They were literally taken off of the cross, thrown into a cart, and hauled out to the dump and pitched in. 
they were not considered at that point humans with any level of dignity or respect. Uh, it was an awful thing. And so this was, uh, you know, kind of like for those that were uh, served in the military, and this was like latrine duty for those guys that were in the uh, in the Roman service. And so one of the perks of that though was that you kind of got to get some extra free stuff. You got to get some swag off of these folks that were going to be dying and they weren't going to need it. And so they would take all of the elements of the garments and they would divide them up amongst themselves. You get the you get the turban, you get the sash, right? You get some sandals and those kind of things. But when it came to the inner garment, the inner tunic of Jesus, it says something rather unique and something that was unique uh, that was not normal of normal folks in the area that were there of normal Jewish folks, it says that his tunic was woven in one piece from top to bottom, no seam that was involved in it. So just think about, if you can even think about you know, how you would uh, create a garment, that's not an easy task to try to weave something in which there's, it's not all sewed together and pieced together. It is woven from top to bottom. There would have been no shoulders in it, but it would be woven one piece all the way around as it goes down and makes this uh, robe type of structure that's not sewed together. And so they looked at it and they said, well, it doesn't make any sense for us to, you know, that's a pretty expensive piece of clothing. Let's not cut it up into four pieces and use those things for rags or whatever we want to do with those things. Let's take out some dice. They the term for that is lots in the old or the, in the scriptures, and we'll cast those. And it's kind of like I choose five, I choose six, or whoever rolls the highest, or however it was going to go, and whoever wins gets to catch it, gets to keep it as themselves. And they're just doing, this is normal day stuff for them. This is just how this plays out for them. They're like, hey, this is kind of neat. This is abnormal for the folks that we normally crucify. This is kind of a unique thing. Let's do this. And in the midst of that, they have no idea that what they are doing is expressly fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. There's there's no less than 20 Old Testament prophecies directly speaking about this one singular event of the crucifixion of the Messiah and the specific things that would need to take place in it. Last week we took a look at the uh, the um, experience of the two thieves on the cross, the armed robbers that died alongside of Jesus. That's one of those that was put forward by the prophet Isaiah that said that the suffering servant um, would die between robbers uh, and would be counted amongst those as transgressors. And here in this, uh, in Psalm chapter 22, it talks about this one particular thing that he, the, the, the psalmist, David, is he's envisioning this thing, which we're going to look at a little bit more closely uh, when we get to the, one of the next statements of this where he says, it is, uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Coming from Psalm 22. But there's one particular is pointed to the reality that they would specifically cast lots to divide up his clothing. It goes beyond that, though, in the nature of the specific nature of that particular garment. We would just think, well, it's a, it's a garment. They looked at it and they thought, well, that's nice. And that's, you know, we, we don't want to ruin it by you know, ripping it to shreds. But there is some huge significance that they were absolutely oblivious to. They were going down through uh, their normal day life and not thinking about it. 
One aspect of that that is very specific is that that garment, very specifically, is one of the garments that God specifically said that the high priest was always to wear. That if you were a high priest of Israel, like the highest, the the lead pastor, the lead shepherd of the worship of Israel, one of the things that you were supposed to wear amongst all the other very fancy things was a tunic that was seamless, woven from top to bottom. And this is what Jesus was wearing upon His body. The other thing that was significant about that is when the high priest was stepping out of their role, because high priests didn't always stay high priests, they would transfer that position from time to time, sometimes through voting, sometimes through dying, other kind of things, and they would hand off that role to somebody else, and the symbolic nature of that, because it was such a specific thing in that, is that as they would take off all of their high priestly garb and set it aside for the next guy to put on, they would take that garment that they were wearing and they would rip it apart signifying I am no longer in this role of being the high priest passing that from one generation of that to the next the author of Hebrews when he describes Jesus if you were to take the entire book of Hebrews uh, and sum it up into one statement can anybody sum up the book of Hebrews into one statement Jesus is better. You can read the entire book of Hebrews and you'll see Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is better than the high priests. Jesus is better. And it says that we have a high priest forever in Jesus There was something that was so sacred that was happening in this moment. As these uh, Roman soldiers were carrying out their normal day activities, they thought, thought nothing special of it. They thought nothing significant of it. And yet it was pointing into eternity. And they had no clue that that was taking place. How many things do we do in our everyday life that we think have no significance other than they're just normal? Right? We have a conversation with our coworker, we eat a meal, we get dressed, we drive over to the AC store, uh, we check our email. We do all of these things and we think nothing of them. Right? They're just normal. They're how we got to get through the day. We got to go through our activities. And yet, the scriptures tell us that every moment, every breath, every action that we have, that we are given, we will give an account for before God. Why is that? It's because there is no such thing as something that does not have sacredness to it in the life of a Christian. God gives us every moment. He gives us every opportunity. He gives us every thought. He gives our lives in a way that we get to live our life for His glory. There's nothing that God looks at in your life that says that's not important. God cares about every aspect of our life. And so there's this picture that just seems like we can read it and go, oh, isn't that interesting? Or that's kind of weird or whatever. But to see the tension that exists between the, the normal and the holy in the midst of everyday action. This leads us to one of the statements that we're going to look at this morning. Seeing there at the foot of, at the, uh, the feet 
of Jesus. Uh, it says um, in verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, there's an interesting bit of information here uh, that is a bit of disagreement from uh, people that study Scripture. Uh, and some of it just comes into the, the question of language. And it's the question of how many women are actually described here? Uh, is this describing uh, uh, two women? Uh, is this describing three women? Or is this describing four women? It doesn't play out really into anything significant, I don't think, theologically. Um, but it is interesting to note that even in just the simple of I read it, and it sounds like... So I'm, what do you think? As you, as you just coarsely read through it, this is a good just test of general reading. Three, four, three, right? This is one of those questions that, you know, that you ever seen the jokes of you know, commas save lives, right? Yeah. Let's eat, comma, grandma, or no... Let's eat grandma. Those are different, you know, commas save lives. Uh, you know, whether this is actually talking about four individuals, so we've got Mary, Jesus' mom, and then it just says, and then her sister, unnamed, and then Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and then Mary Magdalene, whether that's four, or whether it's whether Mary, who is married to Cleopas, is the sister of Mary, uh, or whether even there's some that would say it's only two, that Mary Magdalene is actually all three of those things together and a, and a disunderstanding of maybe where Mary Magdalene plays into that. People have different views on those things. Here's the part that I think is interesting about this. Um, whether there is four, or I, I think the debate really is between three and four, not two and three or four, uh, but... It is interesting to me that Mary's sister is nowhere else mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. She's a, a real character, a real person that shows up there. And we can understand that, like the, the trauma of what is going on. The word has gotten to Mary that this is going to happen to her son and who else better to be with her but her sister in the midst of this great grief. But then likewise, we have no mention of who Mary who is married to Cleopas is. Who's Cleopas and who's this Mary? I tend to think that Mary, who's married to Cleopas, is not the sister of Mary because that would be pretty cruel of her parents to just name, every, it's like George Foreman naming all of his kids, boys and girls, George. Right? It's not cool. At any rate, who's not here at the feet of Jesus? His disciples. Peter's not here. Right? No sword drawn this time. He got run off by a little girl who said, hey, aren't you one of those followers of Him? Right? Judas the Zealot, the one that would have loved to have been in a situation like this, let's kill all the Romans. They're killing our teacher. He's not there. James, the other son of thunder, he's not there. Who is there? John. What book is this? John. And what is John's favorite way of describing himself when he's talking in relationship to Jesus? The disciple that Jesus loved. 
what a, just think about that as John is writing this gospel. So the gospel of John is probably the last of the four that was written. Probably written very late into John's life as he's recalling back. And he's, he's writing out the realities of what is going on. And he gets to him his own self in the story. He can't just simply say, well, I did this or I was in that part. But there's this, this real tenderness as he's back looking, mentally looking at the face of Jesus. And he says, when Jesus came to deal with John, he was dealing with the disciple that he loved. It's an interesting side note that I've gotten weird pushback over the years on, but there's quite a few uh, New Testament scholars that believe that the Apostle John was very young. Very young. Even as young as possibly 12 or 13. And one of the arguments for that, aside from the fact that he's the only one that didn't get martyred and lived a very long time period, was why was John not viewed as a threat when he was with the women at the cross? It's because they didn't nobody viewed him as a man. They didn't view him as a as a threat. It was just kind of looked like some women with a kid. I lean that way, whether that's where you land or not. Uh, I would encourage you to, you know, it's one of those paradigm shifts as you look at paintings of the medieval period and specifically like, you know, the, the Last Supper. Jesus is there. And Jesus is having a Last Supper and what is He surrounded by? A whole bunch of old white dudes. They're all, they're all, they all look like they're like 40 or 50 or 60, right? All surrounding Jesus who kind of looks like He's maybe 33, which is what we know as. Okay, one. All of the disciples, except for John, were younger than Jesus. There's a little bit of a paradigm shift for you as well. I can prove that biblically. And John, this John, is the only one that's sitting there at the feet of Jesus. And as Jesus is on this cross, and Jesus is experiencing the weight of everything, the physical pain that He's in, and the emotional pain that He's in, and the spiritual pain that He's in, He opens His eyes, and what does He see but His mother? And Jesus is the eldest son of Mary. We do know they had two other half-brothers, James and Jude. They're not here. And Jesus, as He looks at His mother, whom He dearly loves, He sucks in breath, and He does what He needs to do as an eldest son. He makes sure that His mom's going to be okay. He looks at... uh, He looks at His mom, and He says, Woman... Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple whom he loved, Behold your mother. And then it says very specifically, From that day forward, the disciple took her into his own home, where he was, and was able to take care of her. It is such a fascinating thing to think about the implications of this. 
that Jesus was looking out for the well-being of His mom from there on out. We don't know a lot of the specifics of certain aspects of Jesus' life. It really is a frustrating thing in a lot of ways for us as we're looking at it. Because there's this one kind of key character that shows up around Christmas time that we occasionally uh, talk about when we talk about Jesus being 12 years old, then after that point, disappears. And who is that character? Joseph. Joseph. I mean, he has a pretty big part Christmas, right? Like, he's the reason, him specifically, is the reason that they go to Bethlehem. He's the reason that Mary doesn't get divorced in disgrace and sent out into public shame and everything else. But he takes the shame upon himself because everybody knows that's not her baby or that's not his baby. Or if it is, then he was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He takes all of that shame upon himself and he loves his wife well. Now again, culturally, things were very, very different in the way that things worked. This was not a... these You know, Mary and Joseph didn't you know meet at a youth group and fall in love and have this kind of thing or whatever. This was 100% an arranged marriage and Joseph was probably significantly older than Mary was. And the challenge of that would, would be that what happened was men died long before their wives did. Long before their wives did. In Jesus' day, if you lived past the age of 45, you would have been considered what we think of when we think of elders in their 80s. A vastly different type of worldview. A vastly different type of understanding of the way things were. And Joseph's gone. And in their day, there wasn't systems in place to help people if they got into destitute situations. And so in that moment, Jesus looks out and sees His mom and there is something very normal that needs to happen. She needs to be taken care of. But there is something very sacred that is taking place. Do you think Jesus maybe loved His mom a little bit? I think so. Do you think Jesus loved John? I think so. And Jesus looked at these two whom He loved dearly and said, take care of each other. It seems so normal, needs to happen, but there is something so profoundly sacred about it. Many of you know that Shell's grandfather is currently dying of stomach cancer and um, we've been processing that from afar. And it's been a, uh, an incredible thing watching. How long have they been married? 73 or 72 years. That's crazy. And to watch as he's getting weaker, still taking care of the things that need to be taken care of so that Nana doesn't have to take care of those things. Oh, let me make sure that the propane is filled up for the propane stove because I can still do that and you don't like to drive the truck. Let me make sure that the things that need to get sold so you don't have to deal with those things that come later, let me take care of those things. Normal, 
going about your day, who thinks anything is sacred, is, uh, is sacred about filling up propane? But the actions by which it is done, for whom it is, there is something that is profound in the nature of it. And as we are looking up at Jesus, and we see Him suck in air to say, Woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. Jesus reminds us that there is nothing that is secular that does not have something sacred attached to it. After He had done these things, Jesus knowing that all was finished. So this is where in John's Gospel we're skipping a little bit of time that takes place in this. And he says, knowing that all things were finished, Jesus says, I thirst. What could be more human than that? Jesus' blood pressure is almost nothing. He's been beaten to a pulp. He's been hanging on a cross. Now from this point, from nine in the morning, and at this point we're now at uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. All of the brutality of this Everything that is weighted upon this. And Jesus sucks in air enough to say, I'm thirsty. Well, of course you are. The kind of trauma that you've been in, of course you're thirsty. There's nothing sacred about this. This is a man who needs something to drink. And yet what we say? In this situation, there is no such thing as the, as the differentiation between what is normal, and what is holy. He says, I thirst. And verse 29 says, there was a jar full of sour wine. It was vinegar. Wine that had gone bad. That stood there. And they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. And then they held it up to his mouth so that he could drink. Now again, do you think that these Roman guards were thinking anything holy in this moment? No. In fact, the other Gospel writers, they describe this same event in the, in the midst of this. And, and they say, alright, now let's see what happens. Let's see if He's gained power and He can take Himself off the cross. Let's see if He can undo all of these things. They do it as a mocking kind of a thing. Jesus in His humanity needed to drink or at least one and two. And yet they step into it in a way that they think is going to be mocking. But they don't just take water. They take wine. And they don't just simply pour it in his mouth or any other splash it on him in mocking. They take it and they put it into a sponge and then they, of all the things that they could put it onto, of everything that was around at their disposal, they grab a hyssop branch. A hyssop branch. What's the significance of that? There is a particular holiday that is being celebrated as this is transpiring. Does anybody know what it is? This is like a Bible study. I'm getting a lot of feedback on it. What is it? Passover. And Passover signifies when the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Right? And you had Charleston Heston that goes to this is that's you not know, <laughs> right the uh, 
I need to find out who the voice actor of the cartoon version of, you know, Prince of Egypt was, right? But he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he says, no, right? Again and again and again. Until God says, okay, you need to get ready because you're going to get out. But what you need to do is you need to take a lamb without spots or blemish. And you observe that lamb and then you are to slaughter that lamb and take the blood from that lamb and you're going to put it over the doorpost of your house. It just sounds crazy. And you're going to put that blood over the doorpost and in the night, every home that has that blood over it, when the angel of the Lord comes, it's going to pass over that house. But any home that does not have that blood over the doorpost of it, the firstborn of that house shall be killed. And surely that's the way that it takes place and that lamb was consumed by their family and they were supposed to be ready to go because that next day, Pharaoh was not just going to say, you're free to go. He was going to tell them, get out. Take the riches of Egypt if, it's, if that's what it takes to get you out of here, but get out. And God told them that every year from that point on, they were to celebrate and remember that God saved them from slavery by the death of a lamb and blood put over them. And that blood that was going to be covered over them was going to be applied over the top of those doorposts by blood on a hyssop branch. And it had only been a few hours since Jesus had picked up a cup and looked at His disciples And He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant which is My blood poured out for you. Jesus was just human saying, I'm thirsty. And yet the fullness of His deity was in display. He was the Lamb that would be slaughtered. He was the blood that would be put over the, the doorpost. It was by this His action that would carry the blood to cover over the people and signify the slaughter of the Lamb that would redeem people from slavery to life. As we sit here at the foot of Jesus and we hear these words, His care and compassion for His mom and this disciple that He loved, some last or end of life decisions that needed to be made. And as we hear Jesus declare the reality of His human flesh, His human weakness, and yet we see the reality that there is nothing unsacred about it. I would encourage us as we sit here and ponder the realities of these things to just simply think, God, what areas of my life do I think don't matter to You? What decisions am I making? What conversations am I having? What hobbies am I participating in? What, what entertainment am I consuming? What way in which I am living do I think fits into a category that doesn't matter to you. And as we sit at the feet of Jesus, we need to be reminded that there is no such thing as a separation from the secular and the sacred. The normal 
and the holy. God cares about all aspects of your life. Jesus cares deeply about every nuance of our life. Who you are on social media, who you are with your coworkers, what you're like at home, how you engage with your kids, what kind of neighbor you are like. All of those things God cares intimately and deeply about. And we can see that clearly displayed as Jesus speaks labored words of truth in His final hours on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. It's not just Jesus, Your death, burial, and resurrection that saves us. It's the life that You lived. Modeling for us the reality that There were huge swaths of time that we don't even have recorded, and yet they're no less significant. God, it is so easy for us to compartmentalize our life into things that are significant and things that we don't think matter to You. Help us to never see those things to be as things that don't matter to You. God, we're asking for supernatural eyes to care deeply about all parts of our lives. That we can live lives that are holy so that the world can see You. We love You. It's Your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.